Let me invite you, if you brought a Bible or have access to one, to please open it now to the book of Hebrews. And we're in chapter 4 today, looking at verses 14 through 16, which is, which is a major hinge verse in the book of Hebrews. Let me explain what I mean by hinge verse. These two verses look backwards to most everything chapter 3 and chapter 4 have set up to this point. But they also anticipate and look forward to the heart of the book from here through chapter 10 around verse 18. And so these are two key verses in the book of Hebrews. They are also two verses I quote or say or pray every single day. Because I believe this, being a Christian and growing in Christ doesn't lead you to the point where you need Jesus and grace less, but rather, as you grow in Christ, you discover you need him far more than you ever dreamed. And so this text today will underline how it functions in the book of Hebrews, but how it also functions in our daily lives. Hear now the word of the Lord as we read from chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. Or excuse me, verses 14, 15, and 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is God's word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the beauty of it and the truth of it. And Lord, we know that it's easy for our minds to drift. It's easy for us to be defensive and put up walls that keep the word from penetrating into our hearts and causing fruitfulness to abound. We do pray that we would lay aside everything that would hinder us from receiving your word, which is life to us. The word is alive and powerful and penetrating. And may that word work in us by your spirit to your glory. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You know, the Christian life is a lot like a sailing vessel. And... This illustration sort of that I'm going to give you sort of underlines the requirements of what it means to follow Jesus and the resources he gives us that enable us to do so. The commands or exhortations, by the, word, by the way, we're going to use that word exhortation a lot. And that's just a good church word, but a lot of people don't know what that means. Well, my football coach in high school was five foot six, and he often exhorted me to put forth more effort. And the way he did it, he would grab my face mask. 
He would jerk my face down into his face, and he would unload both barrels on me and threaten to move me from running back to guard, which would be a real demotion in terms of glory. To motivate me, he urged me to do something, and he urged me to do something with all of my might and all of my power. And so we're going to run into two major exhortations in this particular text. But where do we get the power to follow through? God's commands are like the rudder that determines a ship's direction. Important as that is, however, the ship does not have power to move until a strong wind comes along and fills the sails. In the Christian life, that strong wind consists of the resources that are packed in and found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews is concerned with relating requirements and resources because he writes not merely as a theologian, but as a pastor who cares for his flock. He later describes the entire letter as my word of exhortation, and he exhorts his readers often, sternly, always with urgency, but he's also careful to explain the reasons for his commands, as well as to offer the resources that would enable us to do them. So the end of Hebrews 4 consists of a long exhortation begun in chapter 3 in which the author charges his readers to press forward in the faith, to press on, not hardening their hearts in the face of difficulties. And he's emphasized that there are two key resources available to believers. Now you've got to understand something about this Hebrew church. They were a small house church made up primarily of Hellenistic Jews who had converted to Christianity. They had believed in Jesus. They had stopped trusting in their own works, and they had turned to Christ and rested in him. But now life for them was terrible. Life for them was not working. And they were tempted to begin to wonder if God is really good and if Jesus is really truly Messiah. And their lives were under such intense persecution, such intense hardship, that many of them left and went back to their former faith, Judaism. And so this author is emphasizing it again and again that you must stick to it. You must persevere. But there are resources available that enable you to persevere. And that's what he's going to talk about today. If the Christian life is a sailing vessel. Now, the two major exhortations, he mentions Christian fellowship and encouragement as a means by which we are motivated to continue pressing on so that none of us would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. But another key resource is God's Word, which gives life to us and stirs us up in faith. Now he turns to a third resource, which is prayer, through which we come to before God's very throne and we receive two things we always need, mercy and grace to help in time of need. So the Christian life is like a sailing vessel, and the requirements in the book of Hebrews are like a rudder that points and directs our lives to stay out of uh, trouble. 
The commands are essential. Without them, we would founder upon the shoals and sink. However, as vital as they are, they don't move the ship. Commands have no power in them to make us obey and fulfill them. They provide no power to press ahead. For this, we need the great resources that are ours in Christ. We need God's Word. We need fellowship with other believers. We need prayer. We need mercy. We need grace. This is the wind that puts air into our sails and gives us power to move along the course. And so in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, the writer reminds us that we may approach God with confidence because of his redeeming ministry and the fact that he has ascended to the right hand and he is our great priest. And so we're going to look at three things this morning as we move along. We're going to look at two exhortations. We're going to look at the basis of these exhortations. And then we're going to look at the motivation these exhortations give us to persevere and continue on in the Christian life. So, we have an exhortation. Here's one of them. That is, let us hold fast to our confession and let us with confidence draw near. And so we have for us a great high priest who has passed through the heavens and is presently at the right hand of the Father. I love what Martin Luther said about this particular passage. He says this, first the apostle terrifies us, and then he comforts us. After pouring wine into our wounds, he now pours oil into our wounds. He's talking about the warning in Hebrews 4, 1 through 13, and it's terrifying to think that we as believers could fall, fail to believe and fail to enter into the rest that the Lord has so graciously provided for us. But he warns us, after he terrifies us, he gives us great comfort. And boy, there's a lot of comfort in these verses. And I want to look at the two exhortations for a moment and the language of these exhortations are probably found in your own personal prayer life. They're certainly found in many of the hymns that we sing Sunday after Sunday. But I want you to know what these words mean. I want you to understand why it's so important for the author of Hebrews to exhort us, to urge us this way today. So let's look at verse 14 and we'll address the first exhortation. Let us hold fast our confession. You see, there at the very end of the sentence, let, our, let us hold fast our confession. What in the world does that mean? He is saying to you, Christian, hang tight to Jesus. Cling to Jesus. Hold tight to your confession in him. Hold fast to Jesus. Hold on to him. Hold on to your confession of him. Don't abandon your profession in Jesus Christ. Don't stop believing in Jesus. Don't stop clinging to Jesus. Hold fast to him. That's what he's saying. Hang on. Hold fast. David Letterman, uh, who is now no longer on TV, although I hear he has some specials. But he had something called Stupid Pet Tricks that he used to do in his show. I may be dating myself. Do, do you know who David Letterman is? 
The older I get, the less people know who I'm talking about. I don't know what's happening. But Letterman used to wear a suit that was part of the Velcro attachment. And he had a little mini tramp, and he had a wall that whatever his suit on would stick to. So he would run and jump on that mini tramp and splat himself on the wall, and he would stick to the wall. That is a beautiful picture of what it means to hold on to your confession. Cling to Christ. Velcro to Christ. Keep looking at Jesus. Keep looking at Jesus. Keep holding on to Jesus. Now you say, well, pastor, you're exhorting us. You're encouraging us. You're telling us, where do we get the power to do that? Well, we'll get there in just a moment. But why is he giving this exhortation? He is saying that we as believers need to continue in our loyalty to Christ. Why? Why is he saying this? Because it's so easy to find ourselves in the Christian life where it becomes hard to believe. I once heard a very respected pastor stand up in a conference and preach a passage out of the book of Jude, and he opened with these words, I am amazed that I am still a Christian. And that I'm still a Christian is due to the fact that God has preserved me. You know, my friends, believing is not an easy thing. We think it's easy. We sometimes act like believing is easy, but it is not an easy thing. To have faith, Paul tells us, is a gift. It is the gift of God. To persevere in the faith is the gift of God. To stick to it, to stay at it. Believing is not easy. Some of you are in circumstances right now in your life where believing that God is God and that God is good is very, very hard. You are walking around having this conversation with yourself, maybe afraid to say it out loud, but you're beginning to wonder if God's in control. You're beginning to wonder if God really is sovereign. Why is all this stuff happening to me? Why is everything falling apart? Why aren't things working better for me? Instead of things getting better, they're getting worse. And I'm struggling, Pastor. I'm struggling. And I'm wondering if God is really on the throne, then is he really good? Does he really care for me? Is he really full of grace, as you tell us, week after week? Does he really have my best, uh, my best intentions to fulfill in my life? Sometimes he doesn't seem like he's good because what's happening to us that's intruding into our lives is very, very difficult. I still want to punch that guy who told me, once you come to Jesus, he's going to take all your problems. I didn't have any problems till I came to Jesus. <laughs> that's when they started. But anyway, we've got to hang tight. We've got to hold on. We've got to lay hold of it. But he didn't say Nike theology, just do it. He gives us comfort in doing it. And he gives us help in doing it. He gives us encouragement in doing it. He gives us an inducement to do it. And if you'll look back at the beginning of verse 14, you'll see that he's going to tell you three things that move you to hold on fast to Jesus. First, he says this, Since we have a great high priest, what is the author of Hebrews saying? He is saying, you know, Aaron was a pretty good high priest. You know, he was pretty good. Pretty good at it. 
He wasn't a very good high priest, however, when he constructed the golden calf. Have you ever, have you ever read uh, Aaron's rationale as to how the golden calf came to be? So all these people gathered around me and they gave me all the gold and I just threw it in the fire and out came this golden calf. I think we need a little better priest than that. What is a priest? A priest is someone who stands between us and God, who represents our case to God. We know in the Old Testament the high priest had a major role to perform. And his role to perform happened on Yom Kippur, the Day of the Atonement, where he, that day, would take the blood of a sacrificed animal and go into, past the curtain, into the Holy of Holies, and he always tied a rope around his ankle, and they always put bells on his clothing. Why? Because if he died, you'd hear him fall and you could pull him out. What if God struck him dead? Because he mixed strange fire on the altar. But he would go in and he would take that blood and he would go before the Ark of the Covenant and the cherubim, you thought cherubim, but in Hebrew it's im. I didn't learn much in Hebrew, but I learned that. Okay, so the cherubim, the two angels facing each other, and about three feet long there was atop a golden lid on the Ark of the Covenant and that priest would sprinkle the blood on the covenant and God would meet with that priest there on the basis of the shed blood of the sacrifice and receive the sacrifice and forgive the sin of the people. And so the high priest had, but he was, he was a man, he was a regular man first, he had to offer a sacrifice for himself. And so what the uh, uh, author of Hebrews is saying is that we have a great high priest. There were other good priests in Israel, if you read your Old Testament, and there are plenty of stories about how they helped the people of God, and there were numerous priests. Often uh, Christians are asked, well, do you have a great high priest? And sometimes our dear Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox friends will say to Protestants, why don't you have a priest? You know what our answer is, don't you? We do. We have the greatest high priest ever. And he's such a great high priest that we don't need any human priest. Because no human priest could ever match what the Lord of glory did. He is a great high priest. And so the first reason you can cling to Jesus is you are not wishing into the darkness. You have a great high priest representing you, an advocate for you, a counselor for you, standing before the presence of God, offering his own life and blood, giving to you his own blood to cleanse and wash away your sins, and righteousness to cover our nakedness and shame and guilt. We have that. He is our great high priest. But second, he, look at the next phrase. He has passed through the heavens. He's not just like the Old Testament high priest. As I told you what they did once a year, he is sitting at the right hand of the Father. He has passed through the heavens. He's not in a place that represents uh, the presence of God with his people. He is the presence of God. That's where our high priest is. And that's where he's going to take us. He's there to prepare a place for us. He promises that if he's gone to prepare a place for us, he will come that we may be where he is also. Therefore, hang on to Jesus. Hold fast. Velcro to him. Why? Because he's passed through the heavens and promised 
a Savior who cannot lie, that you will one day be brought to the place that he has prepared for you. And then he says one other thing. He is Jesus, the Son of God. Now, who would you like to have for your intercessor? Who would you like to have for your mediator? Who would you like to have for your representative with God? Hmm. How about God's Son? Sounds like a pretty good idea. The priest isn't just a godly man called to do an important pastoral task as Aaron and his sons, the Levites, were doing in the days of the Old Covenant. This is God in the flesh, called and appointed by the Father to be your mediator and my mediator and to be our priest. And he is your priest. You see, the whole point is to say, look at your priest. Look at Jesus. Look at who he is. Look at what he's like. And I want you to understand, my friends, every time you study what the Bible teaches about Jesus, every time you study what the Bible teaches about Christ, that truth is designed to help you keep the faith. That trust is designed to help you hold fast to your confession. That truth is designed to help you cling tightly to Jesus because there is nothing that can make you cling tightly to Jesus better than a sight of Jesus himself. That is why we need to preach the gospel to ourselves daily and continually. We need to beat it into our heads. Why? Because we forget it. And we need to keep Jesus in view in order to fulfill the calling he has given us. We need the gospel. We need to feed upon it. We need to be strengthened by it. But there's more here. You know, Christian friends, Christian friends can let you down. Some of the meanest people I ever met, I met in church. Have I ever told you that story? Some of the meanest people, low down, backstabbing, cut your throat and laugh while you bleed. I have met those people in church. I don't know how people are out there, but I know how some people are in church. Sometimes our Christian friends will let us down. Sometimes your pastor will let you down. Sometimes your church will disappoint you. Sometimes life will cave in all around you. But Jesus will never disappoint you. There's no one like him. And the sight of him strengthens, vitalizes, energizes faith in our hearts. nobody like him and he says to us Christian keep on believing hold fast your confession cling to Jesus what does he do he just says let me show you Jesus that is why you need to be in the word of God that is why you need to be studying Jesus who he is and what he's done because Jesus taught by the word of God is the Jesus who keeps you believing because there's nothing more conducive to your believing in Jesus than seeing him as he is So we're not aiming here to cram your head full of facts that don't relate to anything else. What we're here to do is to give you the Word of God that shows you your Savior and to encourage you to cling to Him. That is the goal of the preaching of the Word, is to hold up the beauty, attractiveness, suitability, and perfect uh, beauty of Christ to your soul. We all like to look at beautiful things. 
Now, my beautiful things may not be what, like your beautiful things are. I mean, there are things that attract us, and we like to look at them, and we like to see them. But there's no one, no one in this universe more attractive to your soul than the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, well, if you'll listen faster, we'll get through. Now, let us draw near, he tells us, the second exhortation, to the throne of grace. Let us draw near to the throne of grace. First, let's talk about it being a throne. A throne implies power. A throne implies authority. A throne implies transcendence. You see, as we approach God, as we come near to God, we've got to remember God is God. We can't play Him. We can't fool Him. We can't con Him. We can't scan Him. He knows us better than we know ourselves. But the wonderful, if you keep reading, word is that it is also a throne of grace. That God is very approachable. One of the things I used to do as a young Christian was pray in my own name. You ever heard about praying in your own name? You know what that is? You ever feel unworthy to come into the presence of God? I mean, you got some fresh sin in your life, and you're still laboring under the guilt of it, and you feel estranged, you feel distant, you feel maybe even God's aloof, you feel cold, and you don't really want to rush into the presence of the Lord because you just feel filthy and you feel guilty, and you know you've done it, and you don't want to go back and tell him again, you know what I prayed for yesterday that I wouldn't do? Well, I did it! Now, I don't only have that problem as a young Christian. I have that problem after being a Christian for well over 40 years, 45 years. I don't want to go into his presence. And then the Lord says to me, when have you ever been worthy to come into my presence? The thing that's wrong with you, son, is you thought you were ever worthy any time. You are never worthy to come to me. I remember I used to think, you know, if I had my daily quiet time and I read the Bible and prayed and I drove to work and I didn't flip anybody off and I didn't, I didn't say any, too many bad words, hardly any, and I was nice to people and I actually let somebody cut in front of me at the grocery store and I went home and didn't watch anything questionable on television. As a matter of fact, I was reading my Bible and I said, Lord, I feel so good, I'm going to pray. You're forgetting that you can come with boldness, not rooted in anything you are or what you've done, but rooted in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. His undeserved covenant love and tenderness toward people who he loves us in spite of ourselves. In spite of ourselves. And he wants to have fellowship with me. He desires community with me and communion with me. And he wants me. He invites me. He encourages me. He commands me to come with boldness. And boldness means not dragging my tail between my legs, all humped over as an unworthy servant, but to come with confidence, to come with my head held high. Why? Because I'm under the blood and wearing the righteousness of Jesus. And when he looks at me, he sees his son. You want to have something to revolutionize your prayer life? Think about it that way. And bring with you large petitions. 
Don't think you're bothering God. You're not bothering God. It's big enough to bother you. It's big enough to pray about. But we draw near. We come near to God with boldness. We come to him with freedom. We come to him with confidence because of Jesus. And he's exhorting us to boldly and believingly approach God, to boldly approach God in trust and in prayer because of the kind of priest that Jesus is. Now, why does he need to do that? Because unbelievers and believers alike know things about ourselves that we don't want other people to know. We don't want other people to know. And so we don't always feel bold to go in the presence of the Lord. We don't even want to share it with those we love the most. We don't want... (laughs) We don't want people to know because, frankly, we're humiliated by those things. We don't want anybody to know those things. You know, there are what are called respectable sins. You know, when you hear about respectable sins is when you're in a prayer group with other people. I have yet to hear anybody in a prayer group say, you need to pray for me because I'm a pedophile. And... God has convicted me of that, and I need to repent of that, but I don't have the strength to do that. I've never heard anybody say that. Or somebody might say, well, you know, I am completely dominated. I am a slave to food or alcohol or drugs. They got me locked up, and they are, they are choking the life out of me. I'm a substance abuser. Or... I'm struggling with same-sex attraction. I've struggled with it all my life, and I can't get away from it. Or I have the biggest crush on this woman in my office place, or this woman who might say, where I work, there's this guy, and he's so different from my husband. He's so considerate. He's always encouraging. He's always nice. He's always friendly. He always looks good. He's in great shape, and I'm so attracted to him. You see, you don't hear that in a prayer group, do you? Rarely. Rarely. But you know, God already knows. We've already looked last week at how the Word of God penetrates and separates between our joints and our marrow, between the soul and the spirit. And the Word of God is a critic of the motivations and intent and goals of our heart. God already knows it's there. We don't have to be afraid to take it into His presence and uncover it before the Lord. We can come near. We can draw near. We can draw near with all of those things. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, draw near. Draw near again and again because of who Jesus is. Just like we're to hold fast because of Jesus, who Jesus is, we're to draw near because of who Jesus is. And now look at what he says. Or look at what he says. You see it right before the exhortation. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect tempted as we are, yet without sin. You know, we weren't expecting that. You know, after you have just been told that he's a great high priest who entered into the very presence of God, he's the son of God himself, he's God in the flesh, you are not expecting the author of Hebrews to say, and you know what? He understands the temptations that are plaguing you. We weren't expecting that. 
But that's what he says. And he tells us to draw near. Is that not glorious? He understands. It's one thing to believe. It's another thing to draw near. And when we know that we have succumbed to sin, then we know that sin is in our heart. And when you know that sin is dominating your heart, it's very difficult to draw near unless you're just a really good hypocrite and a play actor. And he says, let me tell you something about Jesus. He sympathizes with your weakness because he has been tempted like you. That is stunning. That is literally stunning. Now, to say and declare, as I just have, that Jesus is able to sympathize with us because he endured everything that we endure, this means that he has experienced everything we have experienced. And I can anticipate somebody saying, hold on just a minute, please, Mr. Pastor. I've heard people say this all, over the, uh, all through the years when I've talked about this particular text. You mean to say Jesus has experienced everything we've experienced? Jesus never went through a divorce. I did. He never had a miscarriage like I've had. He doesn't know what it's like to be paralyzed from the neck down in a wheelchair. He has never been through those things, Pastor. But you see, experiences have both an external and an internal dimension. They have a core. On the one hand, if you really want to press your logic here, you could say that nobody has ever experienced anything anybody else has ever experienced. We're all different. Our experiences are unique as a snowflake. But there's a core. What are the cores of these experiences? Being unfulfilled and having a longing. Deep disappointment alienation, loneliness, a sense of being abandoned by God. And when the Bible says Jesus has experienced everything we've experienced, oh, by, by the way, nobody ever had the unfulfilled longings Jesus has had. Nobody's ever had the alienation Jesus had. No one has ever experienced the disappointments that Jesus had. And nobody has ever been abandoned by God as Jesus was. This means whether we've experienced it, uh, externally a divorce, a miscarriage, paralysis, the death of a child, all of those things are horrible. But no one has ever experienced the level of abandonment and alienation and deep disappointment and despair that Jesus has. He's experienced so much more than us, so much more than the worst sufferers in this room than the worst sufferers in history. He's experienced it so much more. And yet, he never sinned. He took that temptation to its fullest extent and experienced the full power of it. And he has perfect sympathy for us. We have at the right hand flesh and blood united to God the Son, one who has experienced our weaknesses, and one who has a heart as huge as conceivable toward our weaknesses. And we all got them. We all have particular bents. We all have particular sins that attract us. And the, none of them are the same for people. None of them are the same. You might be scandalized to hear what might tempt me, and I might be scandalized to hear what might tempt you. But the truth is, Jesus knows it all. And his heart goes out to us. 
That's why you run into the throne room. You run to the throne of grace. Because you have a Savior there waiting for you who is filled with sympathy. What a glorious contrast. The author of Hebrews is not just saying draw near to God because he knows what it's like to be a human. Because he created humans. That's true, but he's saying so much more than that. He is saying... You know the sins you're struggling with? He knows them. Draw near to God because God has sent His Son into the world. He's appointed for His Son to be fully human like you so that He knows what it's like to be you. He knows what it's like to face your temptations. And when you come to Him and you admit to Him what you're afraid to admit to anyone else, you're not going to get a sneer. You're not going to be turned away. You're going to hear from Him, I understand. I was tempted in that way too. You're not going to hear him say, you're a worm. Why are you struggling with that? But you're going to hear from him compassion and sympathy in our brokenness. He knows. He understands. Draw near to God because he knows what you're facing. He knows exactly what it feels like to be you. He knows exactly the sins that are tempting you. You fall into them, he hasn't, but he knows exactly what those temptations feel like. And when you come to him, you're going to find not a word of rebuke, not a word of condescension, not any kind of snobbery, but he's going to say to you, come unto me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I think this probably affected Charles Wesley. When he wrote the hymn, Arise, My Soul, Arise. If you look at it, Wesley's argument is he was wrestling with guilty fears. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off your guilty fears. In other words, I'm afraid, God, to approach you because I know what I'm like. I know what I am. I know who I am. I know what I've done. And I know that you ought and would be perfectly justified in condemning me. Arise, my soul. Arise. Shake off your guilty fears. Charles Wesley is arguing against those guilty fears. Arise, my soul. Arise. Shake off your guilty fears. He appeals to Jesus. And throughout the song, he piles up reason after reason after reason based on Jesus as to why he ought not be kept of drawing near to God because of his guilty fears. Because Jesus has covered those sins. He's dealt with that guilt at Calvary. And the last words of his song, with confidence, I now draw nigh, with confidence, I now draw nigh, and Abba, Father, Father, Abba, cry. There's a guy who got it. I mean, he got it good. He really got it. A bruised reed, he will, not smol- uh, he will not put out, he will not break a bruised reed, he will not put out a smoldering fl- fl- flax, but he will bring you back to God. He will put you back together. He will pour the oil of gladness upon the wounds of your own self-destruction, and he will make you whole. And then the last words of verse 16, and we'll be done. What are you going to find when you come to Jesus? What are you going to find when you go to the throne of grace? Mercy and grace. You're going to get all the help you need. What is mercy? Well, you need mercy because 
Mercy is not giving you justice, but rather showing compassion to you who deserves judgment. You deserve judgment, but God withholds judgment because he judged his son on your behalf, and he extends to you covenant mercy. He extends to you compassionate mercy. That's some of the sweetest words in all of the English language are mercy and grace. You're going to get favor you don't deserve, grace. You're going to get help that you need. You're going to get favor that you don't deserve. There's nobody like Jesus. There's nobody like him. It was J.I. Packer who said this of grace. He said this of grace. He said, the word grace expresses the thought of God, acting in spontaneous goodness to save sinners. God loving the unlovely, making covenant with them, pardoning their sins, accepting their person, revealing himself to them, moving them to respond, leading them ultimately into full knowledge and enjoyment of himself, and overcoming all obstacles to the fulfillment of his purpose that each stage arise. Grace is election love plus covenant love, a free choice issuing in a sovereign work. Grace is God's power. God's power. It is both a person and it's both a power. Jesus is full of grace and truth. And of his grace we have all received grace in place of grace in place of grace. And so when you go to the throne of grace and you hold fast your confession and you hang on to Jesus, he gives you what no one else can give you. He gives you himself. He gives you his grace, and there's nobody like him. And so the writer concludes, as I conclude, hold fast to him. Draw near to him. Come with confidence to the throne of grace. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your word, and we pray that that word would work deep into our hearts so that we will believe it, so that we can really cling to Jesus and draw near to you because you have dealt with our sins at Calvary and you will never leave us or forsake us and you will always give us the help that we need and you'll give us blessings that we can ever, ever deserve. And now, Lord, as we continue to worship you, may we give as people who have tasted of your grace, who have received your infinite mercy, and may we do so with a cheerful heart. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.